Chapter 5, Part 5 of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 5 Tendencies in American. Part 5 Processes of Word Formation. Some of these tendencies it has been pointed out, go back to the period of the first growth of American, and were inherited from the English of the time. They are the products of a movement which, reaching its height in the English of Elizabeth, was dammed up at home, so to speak, by the rise of linguistic self-consciousness toward the end of the reign of Anne, but continued almost unobstructed in the colonies, for example, there is what philologists call the habit of back formation, a sort of instinctive search, etymologically unsound, for short roots in long words. This habit in Restoration days precipitated a quasi-English word, mobile, from the Latin mobile vulgus. And in the days of William and Mary, it went a step further by precipitating mob from mobile mob is now sound english but in the eighteenth century it was violently attacked by the new sect of purists and though it survived their onslaught they undoubtedly greatly impeded the formation and adoption of other words of the same category but in the colonies the process went on unimpeded save for the feeble protests of such stray pedants as Witherspoon and Boucher. Rattler for rattlesnake, pike for turnpike, draw for drawbridge, coon for raccoon, possum for opossum, cuss for customer, cute for acute, squash for ascotasquash. These American back formations are already antique. Sabbaday for Sabbath day has actually reached the dignity of an archaism. To this day they are formed in great numbers. Scarcely a new substantive of more than two syllables comes in without bringing one in its wake. We have thus witnessed, within the past two years, the genesis of scores now in wide use and fast taking on respectability. Phone for telephone, gas for gasoline, co-ed for co-educational, pop for populist, frat for fraternity, gym for gymnasium, movie for moving picture, prep school for preparatory school, auto for automobile, aero for aeroplane. Some linger on the edge of vulgarity, pep for pepper, flu for influenza, plute for plutocrat, pen for penitentiary, con for confidence, as in con man, con game, and to con, convict and consumption, defy for defiance, butte for beauty, rep for reputation, stenog for stenographer, ambish for ambition, vag for vagrant, champ for champion, pard for partner, Coke for cocaine, simp for simpleton, diff 
for difference. Others are already in perfectly good usage. Smoker for smoking car. Diner for dining car. Sleeper for sleeping car. Oleo for oleomargarine. Hypo for hyposulfate of soda. Yank for Yankee. Confab for confabulation. Memo for memorandum. Pop concert for popular concert. Ad for advertisement is struggling hard for recognition. Some of its compounds, that is, ad writer, want ad, display ad, ad card, ad rate, column ad, and ad man, are already accepted in technical terminology. Boob for booby promises to become sound American in a few years. Its synonyms are no more respectable than it is. At its heels is bow for hobo, an altogether fit successor to bum for bummer. A parallel movement shows itself in the great multiplication of common abbreviations. Americans, as a rule, says Farmer, employ abbreviations to an extent unknown in Europe. This trait of the American character is discernible in every department of the national life and thought. OK, COD, NG, GOP, which is get out and push, and PDQ are almost national hallmarks. The immigrant learns them immediately after damn and go to hell. Thornton traces NG to 1840. COD and PDQ are probably as old. As for OK, it was in use so early as 1790, but it apparently did not acquire its present significance until the 20s. Originally, it seems to have meant ordered, recorded. During the presidential campaign of 1828, Jackson's enemies, seeking to prove his illiteracy, alleged that he used it for all-correct, O-L-L. K-O-R-R-E-C-T. Of late, the theory has been put forward that it is derived from an Indian word, oke, signifying, so be it. And Dr. Woodrow Wilson is said to support this theory and to use oke in endorsing government papers. But I am unaware of the authority upon which the etymology is based. Bartlett says that the figurative use of A number one as in a number one man, also originated in America, but this may not be true. There can be little doubt, however, TB for tuberculosis, GB for grand bounce, 23 on the QT, and D&D for drunken disorderly. The language breeds such short forms of speech prodigiously. Every trade and profession has a host of them. They are innumerable in the slang of sport. What one sees under all this, account for it as one will, is a double habit, the which is, at bottom, sufficient explanation of the gap which begins to yawn between English and American, particularly on the spoken plane. On the one hand, it is a habit of verbal economy, a jealous disinclination to waste two words on what can be put into one, 
a natural taste for the brilliant and succinct, a disdain of all grammatical and lexicographical daintiness, born partly, perhaps, of ignorance, but also in part of a sound sense of their imbecility. And on the other hand, there is a high relish and talent for metaphor. In Brander Matthews' phrase, a figurative vigor that the Elizabethans would have realized and understood. Just as the American rebels instinctively against such parliamentary circumlocutions as I am not prepared to say, and so much by way of being, just as he would fret under the forms of English journalism with its reporting empty of drama, its third-person smothering of speeches, and its complex and unintelligible jargon, just so, in his daily speech and writing, he chooses terseness and vividness whenever there is a choice, and seeks to make one when it doesn't exist. Footnote. The classic example is in a parliamentary announcement by Sir Robert Peel. When that question is made to me in a proper time, in a proper place, under proper qualifications, and with proper motives, I will hesitate long before I will refuse to take it into consideration. End footnote. There is more than mere humorous contrast between the famous placard in the washroom of the British Museum. These basins are for casual ablutions only. And the familiar sign at American railroad crossings. Stop, look, listen. Between the two lies an abyss separating two cultures, two habits of mind, two diverging tongues. It is almost unimaginable that an Englishman, journeying up and down in elevators, would ever have stricken the teens out of their speech, turning sixteenth into simple six, and twenty-fourth into four. The clipping is almost as far from their way of doing things as the climbing so high in the air nor have they the brilliant facility of Americans for making new words, of grotesque but penetrating tropes, as in corn-fed, tightwad, bonehead, bleachers, and juice for electricity. When they attempt such things, the result is often lugubrious. Two hundred years of schoolmastering has dried up their inspiration. Nor have they the fine American hand for devising new verbs. To Mafic and to Limehouse are their best specimens in twenty years, and both have an almost pathetic flatness. Their business with the language indeed is not in this department. They are not charged with its raids and scoutings, but with the organization of its conquests and the guarding of its accumulated stores. For the student interested in the biology of language, as opposed to its paleontology, there is endless material in the racy neologisms of American, and particularly in its new compounds and novel verbs. Nothing could exceed the brilliancy of such inventions as joyride, highbrow, road louse, Sob sister, nature faker, stand patter, lounge lizard, hash foundry, buzz wagon, has been, 
End seat hog. Shoot the shoots and grape juice diplomacy. They are bold. They are vivid. They have humor. They meet genuine needs. Joyride, I note, is already going over into English, and no wonder. There is absolutely no synonym for it. To convey its idea in orthodox English would take a whole sentence, and so too with certain single words of metaphorical origin. Barrel, for large and illicit wealth. Pork, for unnecessary and dishonest appropriations of public money. Joint, for illegal liquor house. Tenderloin, for gay and dubious neighborhood. Most of these, and of the new compounds with them, belong to the vocabulary of disparagement. Here, an essential character of the American shows itself, his tendency to combat the disagreeable with irony, to heap ridicule upon what he is suspicious of or doesn't understand. The rapidity with which new verbs are made in the United States is really quite amazing. Two days after the first regulations of the Food Administration were announced, to Hooverize appeared, spontaneously, in scores of newspapers, and a week later it was employed without any visible sense of its novelty in the debates of Congress, and had taken on a respectability equal to that of to Byronize, to Fletcherize, and to Oslerize. To Electrocute, appeared inevitably in the first public discussion of capital punishment by electricity. To taxi came in with the first taxicabs. To commute, no doubt, accompanied the first commutation ticket. To insurge attended the birth of the progressive balderdash. Of late, the old affix, eyes, I-Z-E, once fecund of such monsters as to funeralize, has come into favor again, and I note, among its other products, to belgiumize, to vacationize, to picturize, and to scenarioize. In a newspaper headline, I even find to SOS in the form of its gerund. Many characteristic American verbs are compounds of common verbs and prepositions or adverbs with new meanings imposed. Compare, for example, to give and to give out, to go back and to go back on, to beat and to beat it, to light and to light out, to butt and to butt in, to turn and to turn down, to show and to show up, to put and to put over, to wind and to wind up. Sometimes, however, the addition seems to be merely rhetorical, as in to start off, to finish up, to open up and to hurry up. To hurry up is so commonplace in America that everyone uses it and no one notices it, but it remains rare in England. Up seems to be essential to many of these latter-day verbs. For example, to pony up, to doll up, to ball up. Without it, they are without significance. Nearly all of them are attended by derivative adjectives or nouns, cut up, 
show down, kick in, come down, hang out, start off, run in, balled up, dolled up, wind up, bang up, turn down, jump off. In many directions, the same prodigal fancy shows itself, for example, in the free interchange of parts of speech, in the bold inflection of words not inflected in sound English, and in the invention of wholly artificial words. The first phenomenon has already concerned us. Would an English literary critic of any pretensions employ such a locution as all by her lonesome? I have doubt of it, and yet I find that phrase in a serious book by the critic of the New Republic. Would an English MP use, he has another thing coming, in debate? Again, I doubt it, but even more anarchistic dedications of verbs and adjectives to substantival use are to be found in the congressional record every day. Jitney is an old American substantive lately revived. A month after its revival, it was also an adjective. And before long, it may also be a verb and even an adverb. To lift up was turned tail first and made a substantive, and is now also an adjective and a verb. Joyride became a verb the day after it was born as a noun. And what of livest? An astounding inflection indeed but with quite sound American usage behind it. The Metropolitan Magazine, of which Colonel Roosevelt is an editor, announces on its letter paper that it is the livest magazine in America. And poetry, the organ of the new poetry movement, prints at the head of its content page the following encomium from the New York Tribune. The livest art in America today is poetry and the livest expression of that art is in this little Chicago monthly. Now and then the spirit of American shows a transient faltering, and its inventiveness is displaced by a banal extension of meaning, so that a single noun comes to signify discrete things. Thus, laundry, meaning originally a place where linen is washed, has come to mean also the linen itself. So again, gun has come to mean firearms of all sorts, and has entered into such compounds as gunman and gunplay. And in the same way, party has been borrowed from the terminology of the law, and made to do colloquial duty as a synonym for person. But such evidences of poverty are rare and abnormal, the whole movement of the language is toward the multiplication of substantives. A new object gets a new name, and that new name enters into the common vocabulary at once. Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-E, and Hokum are late examples. Their origin is dubious and disputed, but they meet genuine needs, and so they seem to be secure. A great many more such substantives are deliberate inventions. For example, Kodak, Protectograph, Conductorette, Bevo, Klaxon, Vaseline, Japalac, Resinol, Autocar, Postum, Crisco, Electrolier, Addressograph, Alabastine, Orangeade, Pianola, 
Victrola, Dictograph, Kitchenette, Crispet, Celeret, Unita, Triscuit, and Peptomint. Some of these indicate attempts at description. Oleomargarine, Phonograph, and Gasoline are older examples of that class. Others represent efforts to devise designations that will meet the conditions of advertising psychology and the trademarks law. To wit, that they be A, new, B, easily remembered, and C, not directly descriptive. Probably the most successful invention of this sort is Kodak, which was devised by George Eastman, inventor of the portable camera so-called. Kodak has so far won acceptance as a common noun that Eastman is often forced to assert his proprietary right to it. Vaseline is in the same position. The annual crop of such inventions in the United States is enormous. The majority die, but a hearty few always survive. Of analogous character are artificial words of the scalawag and rambunctious class the formation of which constantly goes on. Some of them are shortened compounds, grandificent, from grand and magnificent, so delicious, from soda and delicious, and orphanage, from war and orphanage. Footnote. This conscious shortening, of course, is to be distinguished from the shortening that goes on in words by gradual decay, as in Christmas from Christ's Mass, and Daisy from Day's Eye. End footnote. Others are made up of common roots and grotesque affixes. Swell Doodle, Splendiferous, and Picherino. Yet others are mere extravagant inventions. Scallywampus, Supergobsloptious, and Floozy. Most of these are devised by advertisement writers or college students, and belong properly to slang. But there is a steady movement of selected specimens into the common vocabulary. The words in doodle hint at German influences, and those in eno owe something to Italian, or at least to popular burlesques of what is conceived to be Italian. End of chapter 5 Part 5